Well, good morning, church, and thanks for being here. Whether you're joining us in person and or online, we are just grateful that you are joining us. I am James, one of the pastors on staff, and today we are right in the midst of a really cool series called Signs. Now, sometimes there are things that we read in the Bible that we have a really hard time grappling with. And this is often true when we read about the miracles of Jesus. Maybe for you, miracles are hard because you don't understand how they are physically possible. Or maybe for you, you just don't get why they're in there at all. I mean, what are they supposed to teach us? Well, in this series, we are dealing with those very issues. In our first week, we looked at how you can be a rational, scientifically-minded person and still believe that Jesus literally did the miracles that we see in Scripture. And the rest of the weeks in this series, we are looking at a different miracle in the book of John, and we are studying them to help us understand who Jesus is and how we can better follow him. But before we dig into today's miracle, let's uh, take a second and pray together. God, we are thankful for another chance to gather as your people and to sing your praise and to study your word. Our prayer today is that you help us read your word in such a way that transforms our hearts and our minds. God, we think of uh, a few specific prayer requests within our congregation. Pray for the Anderson family as they're navigating loss. We ask that you be with them. We pray for a few of our families who are dealing with the challenges of COVID and uh, the hardship of um, having kids in and out of school and what it does to work. We ask that you continue to give them um, encouragement and perseverance that they may get through this time. Lord, we're thankful for your help. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So like I said, we've been working through the biography of Jesus known as the book of John, and we've been examining the major miracles that Jesus performed so that we can see what we can learn. And I've got to tell you something about the book of John. It is a masterpiece of writing. If you remember back to your high school English days, uh, you probably remember your teacher telling you that if you wanted to write a persuasive essay, you needed to start with a thesis, and then all of your points and stories need to help illustrate and prove that thesis. And that is exactly what John does in this biography of Jesus. I mean, the book starts with these famous words. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And then a few verses later, John says, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, Jesus is God, in him is life, he became a man, and he dwelt among us. And the rest of the book of John lays out incident after incident that highlights and proves that point over and over and over. First, we see John the Baptist declare that Jesus is the Messiah. And then Jesus gives us a glimpse of his God power by changing water into wine. And then comes the story of the Samaritan woman where Jesus straight up tells her, yes, I am the Messiah. And then Jesus puts some action behind his words by healing the official son from a great distance. And each major story, and especially each major miracle, 
they're slowly advancing this narrative that not only is Jesus unlike anything the world has ever seen, but the only way to make sense of him is if he really is the Messiah, the one came, who, come, who came to save humanity, God incarnate. But John gives us an extra piece of complexity to this. Each of these miracles, they advance John's major thesis, but they're also creating an extremely nuanced and wonderful picture of what God is like. And by seeing all the miraculous actions of Jesus, we're actually getting an image of the character of God. And this is especially true when we get to our passage today, John chapter 5. So let's check it out. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Now during the first week in the series, Pastor Mike, he brought up the fact that the book of John does not contain all of the miracles of Jesus. Instead, John has picked some specific miracles that best help us see who Jesus is, and this is a prime example of that. Because if you were a first century Jew, observing the events of Jesus' life, you would have at least some familiarity with a bunch of prophecies that were given to the Jews about a time where God would come and restore and redeem his people. And these prophecies, they sounded like this. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come, he'll come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. The coming of God was foretold to be accompanied by various incredible signs, like the blind gaining sight, the deaf gaining their hearing, and the lame given their mobility. And here's the point. Anyone who would have seen this miracle firsthand would have been forced to grapple with a couple realities. On one end, Jesus was fulfilling specific Old Testament prophecies about God personally coming to save and redeem his people. And on an experiential end, Jesus was just doing things that are straight up impossible for humans to do. Maybe a human could do these types of things if God were working through them. But here's the kicker. When the religious leaders approach Jesus and challenge him about the stuff he's doing, Jesus doesn't say, oh, you know, God mysteriously worked through me. I'm blessed that he exercised his power through me today. Instead, he says, this is verse 17, in his defense, Jesus said to them, 
My father's always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. I love the way C.S. Lewis talks about passages like this. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, he said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. C.S. Lewis, he made the discovery that the book of John is trying to force us to make. We can't read about miracles like this, see how they fit in with Old Testament prophecy like they do, and read the things that Jesus said about himself and just brush Jesus off as some guy who was a great teacher and had a big following. No, this kind of stuff, it forces us to grapple with the fact that the evidence points to Jesus as being the Son of God, God incarnate, the one who's come to save humanity from itself. With this miracle, John is trying to get us to see that there is no way we can see Jesus as anything but God come to earth. So here's what this miracle is showing us about Jesus. Jesus is God. But like I said earlier, this miracle, it doesn't just show us that Jesus is God. It's also meant to teach us about what God is like. So let's look closely at the passage again and see what it shows us about who Jesus is. Verse 1 says, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, Jesus, he shows up for this festival. We're not told what the festival is, but just based on the fact that it was a festival, we can know that Jerusalem would have been hopping. I mean, the, the festival system for Jews, it was a huge deal. People would have been there. The markets were bumping. The hotels were full. Anybody who was anything was there. Deals were happening, and in the upper echelons of society, people were plying for influence. There was dinner gatherings, teachers teaching on the temple. It was a time to show the world who you were. And by this time, Jesus had actually been making a name for himself. He could have showed up in Jerusalem and said, What up, Jerusalem? I, Jesus, Son of God, am here. He could have strolled in and into town and said, all right, which one of you well-cultured rich people are going to entertain me and my disciples for the festival? Gather around. Jesus has arrived. But that's not what happens. Check this out in verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool, 
which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. So when I was growing up, we had a neighborhood public pool. At our local park, you could gather around in the summer and go to this pool. It was an amazing thing. You would pay your 50 cents or your $1, and you'd get to swim around and have a great time. Middle school James and his middle school bros used to love this pool, partly because we were middle school boys who loved to like jump and splash and be annoying beyond belief to every other human on the face of the planet. But even more than that, we knew that middle school girls also loved going to the pool. So we'd like hop on our bikes, buzz on down to the park, pay our nominal fee, and then we would strut our stuff for all the lovely ladies of the Moores Park neighborhood to see. If you were a middle schooler in the dog days of summer, the pool was the place that everyone, except for maybe parents, wanted to be. But this pool that Jesus showed up to, it could not have been more opposite. This pool, it was literally one of those places in town that no one wanted to go to because you had two things happening. First, the pool by the sheep gate, it was the place that the shepherds would often bring their sheep into the city and clean them up before sending them to market. So you've got a stinky sheep cleaning pool. But then there was also this myth. Uh, if you're reading this passage in an older translation, you see this. You might notice that the modern NIV seems to be missing a couple sentences here. Older translations, they say this, starting in verse 3. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed, and they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters, the first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Now your modern NIV, it doesn't include that little chunk. Um, and that's because as we've discovered more and older manuscripts of the book of John, the oldest and most reliable of those manuscripts did not include that little section, leading us to think that scribes who knew the myth of the pool of Bethesda added those sentences at a later time to help readers better understand the context. And it's actually kind of helpful. Basically, you had a pool of water in town, and occasionally there would be a disturbance on the top of the water, and people thought that angels were making that disturbance, and so whoever was first to dip into the pool after it, they thought would be healed of whatever malady they had. Which meant that you had all of these people who had serious and life-threatening physical issues just waiting around to try and be the first one into the pool after the surface rippled. Now it's important to note who John says gathered there. He says it was the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now I wanna say this with as much sensitivity as I can because it's really nothing to joke about, but in the first century, before wheelchairs and colostomy bags and readily available handicapped bathrooms, you often had places like this where the lame and the paralyzed would gather and because of the circumstances, the general hygiene was low. People who had to use the restroom didn't have anywhere sanitary to go and were often physically unable to move to a private place. So what you ended up with was a place that was, to put it nicely, unsanitary. 
This is the kind of place that people avoided at all costs. It was dirty, not hygienic. It was filled with people who were of incredible hurt and need, people who survived by begging. Plus, the sheep were there. The shepherds were there. When it was date night in Jerusalem, couples were usually not like, oh my gosh, you know what would be so nice and romantic? A nice walk down to the pool of Bethesda. We could take a picnic basket and it would be so nice. This was not a place that people liked going to. Now, if you remember what's going on with the disciples' mind, uh, they have been following this guy, Jesus, for a while. And the more time that they spend with him, the more they're coming to believe that Jesus is the one sent by God to become king and restore Israel out of the grip of the Roman Empire. The truth is, Jesus, he's gaining quite a following. He's been teaching, doing miracles. People are starting to believe him and support him. So in the disciples' minds, they're headed to Jerusalem during a festival. This is prime time to build influence, to meet some powerful people, to have dinner with folks who might want to support Jesus and help him rise to power. This is the time to teach in a public place and to show the who's who of society that Jesus is their future. But Jesus, he does the exact opposite of that. His first stop is not a nice restaurant filled with local intellectuals. It's not a powerful person's home. It's not even the temple to go and give a great sermon. Instead, he goes to the rancid, sheep-steaking pool where the broken and marginalized are. He goes to the very place that everyone else is eager to avoid. And check out what he does. John tells us, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat, and he walked. We're asking the question, what the miracles in the book of John teach us about the character of Jesus and here's something you cannot miss. Jesus cares deeply about the people that society pushes aside. The Pool of Bethesda, it's the place where people who have been neglected and pushed aside are congregating. They're desperate for help. And this is the place Jesus goes. Our God loves the broken, the hurting, the marginalized the forgotten about. Jesus, he cares deeply about the people that society pushes aside. Now, maybe you're thinking, I got it, James. And actually, that's not really much different than what we learned last week. We all know that God cares for the broken. We get it. But there's something else we need to notice. The point here isn't just that Jesus cares for the people that society forgets about. Part of the point here is that Jesus brings his disciples along with him to show them what he cares about and by extension, what they should care about. 
When Jesus called his 12 disciples to come and follow him, they were entering into this pretty well-known system of apprenticeship. When a rabbi called a person to be his disciple, the basic arrangement was that this new disciple would do three things. The disciple would spend almost all of their time with the rabbi. Everywhere the rabbi went, the disciple would go. Everything the rabbi said, the disciple would hear. They spent all their time together. The new disciple was also expected to do the things the rabbi does. Pray, study, teach, spend time in solitude. And over time, the disciple was expected to become more like his rabbi. In this same process, it was at work with Jesus' disciples. They spent time with him, they traveled with him, they listened to him, they asked him questions, they saw everything that he did, and then they had chances to do what he did. They learned to pray, they healed the sick, they cast out demons, they went to places where the broken and neglected were. And as a result, they were meant to become more and more like Jesus. So when Jesus shows up to Jerusalem with his disciples, and their first stop is the pool of Bethesda, this is a teaching moment. Jesus, he's helping his disciples see that these people matter to him. He loves them, he cares for them, and he wants his followers to do the same. Followers of Jesus are called to care for those that society pushes to the margins. Now, this story is a little different than other miracles um, because uh, the miracle part of the story is actually overshadowed by the discussion that follows it. It's almost like John includes this miracle more for the conversations that it started than for the miracle itself. Check out how John describes this. He says, The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. There is so much in these verses but I want to narrow our focus onto one thing, and that is the contrast that our passage creates between the heart of Jesus and the heart of the Jewish leaders. You've got Jesus. He just showed up at a place where society has been leaving its untouchables. And Jesus, he brings his disciples to show them to love those who have been forgotten about and neglected. And he encounters this man with this heartbreaking story. He's been paralyzed 38 years. And when Jesus asks him if he wants to get well, the man's response, again, is heartbreaking. 
there's no one to help me. Just chew on that for a second. Jesus says, hey, do you want to get well? And the man says, I have no one to help me. I have no one to help me. In a city full of festivals designed to worship a God who cares about the poor and the sick, in the town that is the center of religious activity, I have no one to help me. So Jesus helps him. And then we encounter the religious leaders who live in the same city as the paralyzed man and claim to be a follower of a God who has a special place in his heart for the poor and the oppressed and the sick and the broken. And when they encounter this man who has just been healed, they don't praise God for a mighty miracle. They don't congratulate and celebrate with him that he's just been healed. No, they say, hey, you, it's the Sabbath. Why are you carrying something? You're breaking the rules. And when they find out that Jesus told them to carry his mat, they accuse Jesus of wrongdoing. So Jesus, he responds with something that just cuts to the bone. He said, John says it this way, Jesus gave him this answer. Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. First century fathers were responsible to teach their son their trade. A father that loves his son took special effort to teach the son the ins and outs of how to do the work effectively and successfully. Sons imitated their fathers so that they could perform the work as well as their father had. Jesus brings up this imagery and is saying, hey, I'm just doing what I've seen my father do. I imitate him. Whatever he does, I do. And by saying this, Jesus is saying, if you were trying to imitate God, you would see that what has happened here is good. It reflects the heart of the father. It's the work that he wants his children to do. In other words, the way the Jewish leaders respond to this situation shows us that in their effort to be righteous, they have completely missed the heart of God. Now, it's really easy for us to be disparaging to the Jewish leaders. We say, yeah, they're stubborn, they're uninformed, they get everything wrong. And I don't think that's the case. In fact, I think when we read about the Jewish leaders and their conflict with Jesus, we're supposed to see how easy it is for an overcommitment to good intentions to lead us to miss the heart of God. You see, the Jewish religious leaders, they wanted the people that they were shepherding to be able to follow the commands of God. They wanted nothing more than the people to be able to see clearly what it looked like to live neatly within the bounds of God's instructions. So they took it upon themselves to create a legal system of extra laws and instructions that created parameters for people so that if everyone followed those parameters, they would never risk violating God's commands. The Sabbath restrictions 
are the prime example. God commanded that his people observe the Sabbath. The word Sabbath, it literally means to cease. And the people were to do all they could to make sure that on the Sabbath, they cease from work and honor the Lord with what they do. So the religious leaders over time, they created 39 categories of activity that would be considered working and they codified them so that people were required to follow these man-made laws that would prevent them from violating God's Sabbath command. It's actually a great intention. The problem was that over time, the Jewish leaders became more interested in getting people to observe these rules than they were interested in getting people to understand and live out what God had intended his original command to be. And this stands as a warning to us. We have to be careful that our attempts at ensuring our own righteousness and the righteousness of others doesn't keep us from caring about the things that God cares about. We might not be dealing with the conflict of what we can and cannot do on the Sabbath, but we do deal with this issue on a regular basis. When I was a youth pastor, we started reaching a lot of kids in our neighborhood who had no church experience or background. And these kids started showing up on Sunday mornings, which was amazing. But much to the chagrin of many of our more churched people, they would show up wearing uh, shorts to church on Sunday mornings. Now I would get requests almost every single week from wonderful, godly people who I still respect and look up to to tell these kids who are coming to church to please wear pants and preferably not jeans. They had the best intention. They wanted these kids to live in a way that honored God in every way. And they had found that slacks and shirts with collars and buttons seemed to help them feel like they were showing God that they honored him enough to get dressed up for worship. And that had become such a part of their effort to honor God that when these kids showed up in shorts and t-shirts, they then felt like God wasn't being honored. Not because there's a biblical prohibition against shorts, but because a certain dress code had become codified in their lifestyle in an effort to try and ensure that God was indeed honored. Now the problem was, most of my neighborhood kids were living in households where new clothes, let alone clean clothes and dress clothes, just weren't available to them. So we had a dilemma. The dress code, which was something that had grown out of a wonderful desire to honor God, was actually keeping us from being able to live into the desire of God to reach and care for these unreached kids in our neighborhood. This kind of thing, it happens all the time, whether it's clothes, music, sanctuary decorations, translations of the Bible that we use or don't use. We have a tendency to codify things that we think are helpful to us in such a way where we care more about other people following our rules than we care about whether or not other people are getting a chance to have a life-changing encounter with the God of the universe. And this interaction in the book of John, it offers us a subtle warning for us to be careful that we don't fall into this trap that in our zeal to help others live a righteous life, we don't miss the heart of God. Jesus wants us to care more about the heart of God 
than whether other people are following our rules. So what do we do with all this? Well, let me offer you two suggestions. First, if you're a follower of Jesus, what does it look like for you to follow him to the pool of Bethesda? That is, how can you be trying to emulate Jesus in how he cares for those who are most neglected by society? Maybe it means uh, finding time to talk to the elderly man next door who doesn't have anyone in their life to care for him. Maybe it means budgeting a little differently so that you can support a kid through a program like World Vision. Or maybe it means making sure that you take time to talk to that weird person at church that everyone else avoids. How can you be trying to live into the fact that Jesus cares about those on the margins? And so should we. Secondly, I would encourage you, when you feel yourself feeling a little tense or uneasy about the stuff that other Christians do, before you go and complain about it, take some time to ask yourself whether this is an issue that really deals with a scriptural mandate, or is this, a just, is this just a place where someone else isn't living into the rules that you've made for yourself to help you live for Jesus? Church, our God cares deeply for the hurting and neglected. So let us be a people who seek to emulate that. And let us try and be a people who seek to follow the heart of God over the self-made rules of man. Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful for the ways that you show us who you are and what you're like. We're thankful for these miracles for the encouragement to follow you to the pool of Bethesda, for the reminder that we need to be careful that we're not missing your heart in our attempt to help others live a, a righteous life. Father, help us be people who try and emulate you in every way we can. Pray this in your name. Amen.